stay in Ephesians chapter 6. Grab your Bible if you would and turn there. And we're actually going to finish this morning our journey through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, through the Holy Spirit's letter to the church in Enumclaw in the book of Ephesians. And uh, way back in June, we started this journey in chapter 1, verse 1. This morning, we're going to finish it in chapter 6. Let me remind you what we said to ourselves at the beginning, that it is God's agenda in our lives to grow us to the place where we take his word on his terms. When we're young and immature, we go to God and say, God, here's my situation. Here's all the things I'm dealing with. Here's what I see and feel and think. But as we mature... We come to the place where we say, hey, God, why don't you talk to me about what's on your heart, about what you see as the most important issues, about what you see ahead of me and in me. And kind of we grow to this place where we begin to receive God's word on its own terms. And, and that's what we're doing here in Ephesians. We're walking verse by verse through this letter, letting God talk to us about what's on his heart. Next week, I'm excited, we start a new series, which will be a topical series called Rooted, Digging into the Promises. We're going to talk about the places where God has called us to stand on his promises and what those promises are. But this morning, we're going to finish in Ephesians chapter 6. So beginning with verse 10 down through verse 24, and let me begin by saying, you know, I, I sometimes get in my own way. Can you relate to that? You set out to help, and maybe you sabotage the whole situation, or you, 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 know, you, you set out to do good, and maybe you end up causing. Uh, more problems than you solve. I think all of us have that experience sometimes. I'll always remember one day when uh, a big event was coming up in the church that I was pastoring at the time, and I wanted everybody to feel invited and personally involved, and so I set out to call every single person on the church roster personally and invite them to be a part of this, and I'm just making a whole bunch of phone calls in a row, trying to get a whole lot of calls done, and Partway through the process, I dialed somebody's number and, you know, was ready to keep going. And as soon as I dialed the number, my phone rang. And I thought, oh, okay, somebody, I got to take his call. So I answered it and there was nobody there. And I thought to myself, well, that's a hassle. So, okay, okay, right, keep going. I dialed the next number and no sooner did I finish dialing than my phone rang. You're probably smarter than me, so you already know what's happening. And I answered and there was nobody there again. I'm like, are you kidding I got things to do, and I, the third time, and it was on the third time that I realized I was actually dialing my own number. <laughs> Sometimes we all get in our own way. There's some famous examples of that. As a matter of fact, in one of the most famous football plays in NFL history, Minnesota Vikings defensive lineman Jim Marshall was so excited to scoop up a fumble in a game against the 49ers Every lineman dreams of scooping up a fumble and scoring a touchdown. He was so excited that he took off running the wrong way towards his own end zone. And he outran the rest of his team. Guys later said we had no idea he was that fast. It wasn't until he was done celebrating that he realized he just scored a safety for the other team. Yeah, he's not the only one. One of the more famous college football plays, the same thing happened to a guy named Roy Regals at the 1929 Rose Bowl. He recovered a fumble for Cal. They were playing Georgia Tech, and when he recovered it, he was just 30 yards from the end zone from scoring a touchdown, but somehow, in all the excitement, he got turned around, took off in the wrong direction. Fortunately, one of his teammates caught him on the one-yard line and presented the, prevented the scoring of safety, tackled his own guy before he could score for the other team. Sometimes we get in our own ways. 
And then there was our very own Seahawks coach who got in his own way on the one-yard line by trying to pass the ball. Yes, I'm still living it, and yes, I'm still bitter, and so are you, so don't pretend you're not. Sometimes we get in our own way. A lot of times it's funny, but sometimes it isn't. In fact, getting in our own way, the military has a phrase for this. They call it friendly fire. Maybe you've heard it before. It's when the military inadvertently fires on its own troops. In the most famous tragedy in the long history of friendly fire incidents, that's exactly what happened. It was the 3rd of May, 1945. Three passenger liners set sail from the German port of Lubeck on the Baltic Sea. And it was just one day before the end of the war. Everything was going to stop in 24 hours. When these three passenger liners left port, Allied intelligence believed that they were filled with Nazi officials, with stolen gold and loot, art treasures, and that these three ships were headed for Sweden where these Nazis, leaders and officials, would escape justice. Nobody wanted that to happen, and in all the chaos, there was only one way to address the issue, and so nine British fighter bombers were sent out to attack those three ships. Their attack was a spectacular success. They sank all three ships. Everybody on board went in the water. And you have to understand the feelings of the time, those nine pilots having sunk the ships, then devoted themselves to expending all their ammunition in repeated runs over the water, shooting the survivors who were in the water, thinking these are Nazi, these are leaders of the worst of the worst, SS camp guards, the whole nine yards. It wasn't until more than a week later that the truth was discovered that those three passenger liners were not filled with Nazi officials fleeing justice, but in fact contained 3,000 American and British POWs and more than 4,000 people who had somehow survived the concentration camps and all were headed to freedom in Sweden. Now imagine what it would feel like to be one of those pilots and find out that you had set out to fight the war on the right side and it ended up being part of one of the worst tragedies in all of the war. And there's a a sad postscript to this story. You see, the Swedish government, their intelligence had discovered the truth about who was on the passenger liners. And in the 48 hours leading up to the tragedy, repeatedly tried to convince Allied High Command in London that these boats weren't full of Nazi officials, but no one believed them. And do you know that remains from that tragedy of American and British POWs and concentration camp survivors were still washing up on the shores of northern Germany in the early 70s? More than 7,000 people lost their lives. Now, Pastor Greg, that's really not what we should be talking about in church, you're thinking to yourself. Here's why I share that story with you. Because the Apostle Paul is going to talk to us about the fact that you and I are also involved in a very real war. All of us. Every one of us. And because we are, one of the most important things that we must understand is not only the reality of that war and how to be engaged in it, 
but also how to know the difference between friend and foe. How to know the difference between enemies and those we're seeking to save, to rescue. And it's that that's on Paul's heart in Ephesians chapter 6 as he writes about this war and about the need to know the difference between friends and enemies. Listen to what the Bible says, verse 10, chapter 6 of Ephesians. The scripture says this. Finally, Paul's going to end his letter to the Ephesians. He's talked about a lot of things. Finally, he says to us, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not in our power, but his. We're going to come back to that. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Every one of us is called to take that stand, both individually and together. Paul says, hey, put on the armor of God so that you can do that. And then he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Not against flesh and blood, not against who's running this government or that government, not against who holds this power or that power, but against these spiritual realities. At the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians, he talked to us about how invisible realities are greater than visible ones. We talked about how we're all about to discover that when we exit this life. That same theme is still on his heart. So he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then. Three times he said stand. That's significant. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What does that mean? We'll see in just a moment. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Let's stop for a moment. Let's kind of take this in. What Paul is doing is calling our attention to an invisible reality. Not an invisible unreality, but an invisible reality. Such things are all around us all the time. As we sit here this morning, you and I are being profoundly affected by a host of invisible things. Now, if we accept the perspective of the culture around us, we'll say, well, those invisible things aren't real. But the truth is, invisible things are often the most real things that directly influence us. For example, this morning, right now, you and I are being affected by a bunch of invisible things. We're all being affected by gravity. Somebody say amen. The older we get, the more we're affected by gravity, right? I mean, that's happening. We're all being affected by microbiology, by invisible processes in our bodies, in our brains. We're being profoundly affected by that invisible reality. We're all being affected as we sit here by our thoughts. Some we choose, some seem to come from somewhere else. We're all being affected by, we're affected by our feelings. They're invisible, but they profoundly affect us. We're being affected by time, all of us, all the time. 
And God says we're being affected by the things of the spirit, by the spiritual realm, by the spiritual reality. Now, like medieval skeptics, our modern culture doubts the reality of the things of the spirit, but God reminds us that they are very real and very significant. You know, one of my favorite stories from history, you all know I'm a nerd, I love obscure stories. And one of my favorite stories of history is about a, a Swiss doctor by the name of, of Philip Semmelweis. And Philip became aware in the early 19th century, first part of the 19th century, that, gosh, a lot of women were dying in childbirth, way more than you would expect. And as he began to try to understand why, he noticed that the doctors who were helping these women give birth were coming directly from the morgue where they had practiced autopsies and anatomy and physiology lessons. Important stuff for doctors to do. But these doctors would walk straight from the morgue and their work there, not even stop by the bathroom on the way and go straight to the OB ward where they would assist with deliveries. And then women would get infections, get sick and die. Dr. Semmelweis said, I wonder if there's a connection. And as he began to research this, he, he came up with a theory. And he started telling his fellow doctors, hey, I'm paraphrasing, I think there's these invisible bugs. And I think when you go from the morgue to OBGYN without sanitizing your hands and your tools, I think what you're doing is you're transporting these invisible bugs into these women's bodies and it's making them sick and then they die. His colleague said, what is wrong with you? Invisible bugs? Are you kidding? Now, you and I know full well that what Dr. Semmelweis had done was begin to discover an invisible reality that was profoundly significant. The cool end of the story is that he eventually convinced his fellow doctors to at least wash their hands when they went from the morgue to OB and women's mortality rates in childbirth dived by more than 70%. It was the beginning of the microbiological revolution that we enjoy the fruits of to our day. But it began by becoming aware of an invisible reality. Paul says, hey, Christ followers, Christians, churched folks, understand that there is an invisible reality that profoundly affects your life, the lives of everybody around you, and indeed this whole world. And Paul, when he talks about that, he refers to it as our struggle. <laughs> you know, if I were to ask for a show of hands how many people feel like they struggle in life, probably almost every hand in this room would go up. We all do struggle. And, and when we do, we tend to assign blame. We struggle, we say, because of the government. We struggle, we say, because of our neighbors. We struggle, we say, because of our family. We struggle, we say, because of our circumstances. And to some degree, those things are true. But God says our greatest struggle is not against those things, but against the reality of what's happening in the invisible reality of the spirit, in the spiritual realm. And having called our attention to that, he says, understand that, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, the root cause isn't overcome by defeating visible enemies, but by defeating invisible ones. 
Or to put it another way, God says that changing our circumstances or our friends or our enemies or our situation or our material benefits, changing those things can't win this battle. That's why he says when it comes to this battle, you must learn to be strong in the Lord and in his power. Verse 10 as distinct from earthly power. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle is going to say the same thing to the Corinthian church when he writes, though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. They are the weapons of that world. And he draws a, dis a distinction between visible power and its ability to help us in our struggle and invisible powers and its ability to help us in our struggle. Jesus touched on this same thing. When Jesus began his ministry, the Bible says the Holy Spirit led him into the desert, and the devil came to tempt him. And one of the things the devil did was said to Jesus, hey, I know you want to save the world. I know you want to change the world. I know you want to do ultimate good. So guess what? I will give you all the authority and power in the world. I'll make you Caesar of Caesars in this world. I'll give you all earthly power you could possibly have, and I'll give it to you right here and right now. Now that would be incredibly tempting to many people. Oh, if I was dictator of the world, imagine what I could accomplish. But Jesus knew better. And the scripture says that Jesus said, no, that won't help me accomplish my father's mission. That won't help me defeat the work of the real enemy in the world. No, I don't want that power. I don't need that power. I'm not seeking that power because that's not the way to win the battle. It's the same idea that Paul is calling our attention to here. It's the same thing that God wants you as his son, his daughter, to grasp and understand that there is a very real invisible war that you and I are affected by and which you and I can affect and indeed are called to affect. How? Well, he tells us how. First of all, he says, seek to be strong in God's power. And then he paints a colorful metaphor. He paints a word picture of a Roman soldier with which his whole audience would be intimately familiar. They saw him all the time. And he's going to take the, the, that common picture that everybody recognizes and he's going to say, use that as a reference for the invisible reality. Sometimes we emphasize the Roman soldier's armor when we talk about spiritual warfare to such a point that we forget the point, which is what Paul is using the armor to point to, some profound invisible realities. And Paul says in verse 11, put on this armor of God, by which he means get your invisible parts, your heart, your mind, your spirit, Get them ready for spiritual warfare. And look what he says at the end of verse 11. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now that phrase schemes is incredibly meaningful. In fact, this is the only time in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul or any apostle uses this particular Greek compound word. The word is kosmokraton. And what it means literally is the the system holder of the world's darkness. What it means is that system of lies and deceptions which the devil seeks to cultivate in our world. Lies about who God is. Lies about who you are and who I am. Lies about what religion is. 
Lies about what is good or bad, what is right or wrong. Lies about who our enemies are. And lies about how we defeat evil. And Paul goes on to say, understand as you grasp that this is the real war, that that means that our enemies are not flesh and blood, other people, but instead these ideas, these schemes that our enemy has sown in our world. Not just propositions, not just thoughts about what is and isn't, but values, what's important, what's less important, what's more important, what matters. Paul says that each of us are called to take our stand against those things. Now, here's why, church. These lies have incredible power. Lies are some of the most worldly powerful things there are. It's why when the devil came to Adam and Eve in the garden at the very beginning of creation, he didn't chase them around the garden and try to zap them with Harry Potter power. He told them a lie about God. He offered to them a lie not only about who God is, but who they could be. And he sold that lie to them because he knew how powerful it was. You know, a great story I came across some time ago in 1997, speaking of the power of lies. A 14-year-old boy named Nathan Zoner circulated a petition at his high school science fair. And the petition that he circulated at the science fair advocated for the banning of a substance called dihydrogen monoxide. He felt like this was his personal crusade. And so he went all day throughout the science fair collecting signatures on his petition. And to anybody who would listen, he explained that dihydrogen monoxide is terribly dangerous. It accelerates the corrosion of metals. Um, It has been found in the excised tumors of cancer patients. Just a little bit of this stuff in your lungs can, can kill you. He noted that this nefarious chemical is widely used as an industrial solvent, that it's an ingredient in the manufacture of many polluting products such as styrofoam and plastics, and, and that it is still the number one chemical used in firefighting to this day. It's everywhere, he said, we got to ban it. He got hundreds of signatures from people who agreed, yeah, we need to take action. We need to ban dihydrogen monoxide. It wasn't until the very end of the science fair that he shared the chemical signature of the chemical that he was wanting everybody to ban. And that signature is H2O. He was talking about water. But everybody bought the lie. Everybody wanted to ban water. Hundreds of them signed up to do so. He said, the rest of my fun is going to be what I want to do with this list of names on my petition, you know. How easily we can be deceived. The devil knows that. And so his agenda is to sow these lies. Paul is saying, hey, understand that you and me and us, we are called to take a stand against those kinds of deceptions. How do you do that? First of all, by renewing your mind, by letting Jesus deconstruct whatever ideas you get from the internet or pop culture that you invented on your own about who God is and who you are. You got to listen to him in order for that to happen. Jesus said, don't listen to the devil. John chapter 8, verse 44. He's a liar and the father of lies. Everything he says is a deception. Paul describes spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 this way, saying, hey, here's how we battle the devil. In verse 4, he said, we don't use the weapons the world uses. We use spiritual weapons in a spiritual battle. And then he explicitly describes what that looks like. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, 
we fight against these lies. We fight against these deceptions. So spiritual warfare consists in that, but it consists in more than that because here's the reality, church. You and I are more than thinkers. In fact, it can be argued that we aren't even primarily thinkers. We're also feelers. And we're also spiritual beings. And so worship and prayer are very much a part of spiritual warfare. Worship and prayer will profoundly impact your struggle. Paul says your struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the government, the economy, your neighbors, your business, uh, you know, uh, adversaries. It's, it's not against, it's against these spiritual realities that affect you and them and us. And we deal, can I just tell you that um, a lot of us, because we're Westerners, we think, well, the primary Christian discipline is learning the Bible. It is crucially important, but right alongside it are learning to worship God with our whole hearts and learning to practice the discipline of prayer. And so Paul calls us to all of that in this word picture of a Roman soldier. And most uh, uh, poignantly, in verse 12, he says to us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that is other people, but it's against the rulers, authorities, and spiritual powers of this dark world. He doesn't mean governments. When he speaks of rulers and authorities, those are uh, cultural terms for, for spiritual beings, the demonic, those beyond our perception who are nevertheless extremely real. He says, our real struggle is against them. To, to put this another way, and we're kind of into the home stretch this morning, church, the people of God aren't fighting earthly enemies, but spiritual ones. Followers of Jesus aren't struggling against Democrats or Republicans. We're not struggling against Chinese or Russians. We're not struggling against the rich or the powerful we're not struggling against socialists or fascists or even New England Patriots fans, tempting as that may be. We aren't struggling against those things. We're struggling against the devil and against his world system of lies. And in fact, the flesh and blood that Paul speaks of, those are the very people we're seeking to save. Those are the very people that God has called us to rescue, not to set out. To destroy, which is why Jesus says, go and learn what this means, Greg. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What was Jesus saying? Hey, these people aren't the enemy. These are the ones we're trying to save. The enemy is invisible and profoundly influential. And this being the case, okay, God calls us to prepare for that spiritual war. That's what we're going to end talking about this morning. God calls you and I to prepare to enter into that spiritual battle. How do we do that? Well, before we do that, understand this. When it comes to battles, military professionals have a saying. It goes back to Napoleon. You'll hear it quoted all the time. It goes like this. Napoleon said, amateurs talk strategy and tactics. Professionals talk logistics. In other words, those who understand how battles are won and lost talk about how do you get bread and water and fuel and ammunition and equipment to the right place at the right time because they know that's how you win. 
All the juniors talk about strategy and tactics, but strategy and tactics aren't worth anything if you don't have weapons and ammunition and equipment and food and so on. So amateurs talk strategy and tactics. Professionals talk logistics. Paul's saying something like that. He's saying, hey, guys, you've got to prepare for the battle. How do you do that? He uses a single colorful metaphor about Roman soldiers' armor. He says to us, put on the armor of God. By that, he doesn't mean some magical pieces of enchanted armor that we put on our spirit being in some fantasy virtual reality game idea we have in our heads. That's not what he means. He's talking about what each of those things signify. And so he says, put on, for example, the belt of truth. The belt of truth. What is he talking about? He's talking about sound doctrine. He's talking about what the Bible calls the truth about who God is and what religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is. He's talking about the reality of how we relate to and live with God. The belt of truth. Sound doctrine. Now understand something. The belt of truth won't stop a bullet. It won't. It's not designed to. You know what the belt of truth will stop? It will stop lies. Bullets kill bodies. Lies send souls to eternal hell. There's an enormous difference there. So Paul says, hey, Greg, I need you to belt on the bu- bu- uh, buckle on the belt of truth. Easy for me to say. He says, hey, understand that you need to seek truth in your life. Jesus' favorite saying, I tell you the truth. And how do you do that? You listen to him. Put on the belt of truth. Second, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, righteousness means right standing with God when there's nothing between us and him. Paul says, put on the breastplate of how that happens, how righteousness occurs. And as Christ followers, we know that we are reconciled to God. We are given righteousness when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we receive him as our Savior. We don't gain righteousness by how well we live. That's a response to righteousness. So the breastplate of righteousness, what he's talking about is this understanding that we come into right relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for God. Like you, I have been to many, many funerals. And over and over and over again, I hear people talk about the deceased and they want to exalt them and they want to talk about how they hope they went to heaven. And almost always they'll say the same thing. She was such a hard worker. He worked so hard. You know, he would always be a hard worker. Friends, hard work leads no one to heaven. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by Jesus' work. Our work is just a response to that. And it is only when we know Christ as our Savior that we have righteousness, but it is because we know Christ as our Savior that we have righteousness. And so Paul says, strap that around your middle. Rest in that confident protection. Like the apostle says in Romans chapter 3, but now in the gospel, a righteousness from God, that is not one we acquire or produce, but one God gives to us, a righteousness from God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. Yeah, so the breastplate of righteousness is the understanding that we're made right with God by what Jesus did, not what we do. That invisible reality will have a profound effect on you if you strap it on. He says, take up the helmet of salvation. What does that mean? It means that believers have been redeemed and are learning to live up to what's already been done for them. We're learning to live up to what's already been done for us. That's the helmet of salvation. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, the apostle Paul says, only let us live up to what we've already attained. 
The helmet of salvation is an understanding that we are saved again by what Jesus has done. We're not only made righteous, but we are saved from God's judgment and wrath by what Jesus has done. And as we take that on ourselves, it changes how we live. It changes our struggle. It changes our thoughts. It changes our feelings. It changes our behavior. I remember when, when Isaiah was born. And, uh, you know, we had a little warning. We knew he was coming. But uh, I, I had no idea what it would feel like when he was put in our hands in the hospital. And all of a sudden I realized, I don't know how to be a dad. <laughs> I'm not ready for this. Here it comes. But even though I wasn't ready, and even though I didn't know how to do it yet, guess what had happened already? I was a dad. <laughs> Here we go. The helmet of salvation is the understanding that you may not know how to live a Christian life to the nth degree yet, but you've been made one and now you're in the process of learning it. And when you think that way, and when you feel that way, and when you act that way, you tell the truth about who God is, you give the lie to the enemy's deceptions about who God is. The helmet of salvation. He talks about the shield of faith by which he means our choice to believe what God says more than what we think or feel. That's what the shield of faith is all about. Believing what God says more than what we think or feel. That's a big deal. Paul says, if you do that, you will extinguish the flaming arrows that the enemy shoots at you. He's not talking about super magic arrows in you know some weird movie. He's talking about the devil's invitation to believe what we think and feel instead of what God says. You know, again, I remember years later when Isaiah was learning to drive, he had the hardest time with parallel parking. He just couldn't master it, and he struggled, and he struggled. He says, I can't do this. I said, son, you can do this. I said, trust me, I know you can do this. And he struggled. And then he went to his first driver's test, and he failed it because he couldn't parallel park. And he went home, and the sky is falling, and his life is over. And he says, I can't do this. I'll never drive. I said, son, well, there's probably a lot of people that are hoping that's true, but, um, it, you know, I said, you can do this. You can do this. I know you. Here's what I said to him. I said, I know you better than you know you. And so I'm asking you to believe me when I tell you you can do this. Well, eventually he started trying again. I'll never forget the moment when he parallel parked for the first time ecstatic, overjoyed, thrilled. I can do it. Yeah, I knew that all along. In the same way, God says to you and I, believe what I say more than what you think or feel. When you do that, you put on the armor of God. And then the last thing, he says, have your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Not quite the last thing, but we're running out of time. What does that mean? It means letting grace motivate you to share the good news. It's a simple question here. Do you believe that the gospel is the good news that God freely gives grace to any sinner who asks? If you believe that, you want to share that. Somehow, some way, with words, without words, somehow, you want to share that. If you believe that, you want to share that. Paul says, believe it so that you will have the desire to share it. Let your feet be fitted with the understanding that you have great good news to share with the world around you. Again, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore we're Christ's ambassadors. His love compels us. As you let his love compel you, you become part of this great spiritual battle. And then he says, offensively, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, 
begin learning God's word so that you can put your faith in it, so that you can live by it, and so that you can share it. As you do that, you get to play offense as well as defense. All these other pieces of armor just enable you to take it. But what are we all waiting for at the end of Rocky? We're waiting for him to hit back. God says you can if you'll move his word, the Bible, to the center of your life and begin to treat it as something you desire to learn and understand. And I remember when I was in the Marines, there was a group of us that were really into weightlifting. And so uh, this one guy came, hey, Greg, you, look, you got all those muscles. He says, why don't you go boxing, join the boxing matches on Friday night? I'd never done that before in my life, but he talked me into it. So without any training, I stepped into the boxing ring on a Friday night, 200 pounds, that makes me a heavyweight, huge guy opposite me, and I thought, oh no, where's this going? And, but I went into it, I was, you know, 19, we're gonna go do this. And, after one round, three minutes, I couldn't lift my arms anymore. <laughs> you know, I was so tired, I couldn't punch anymore. I remember going to the corner and thinking, people do this for 15 rounds, they've gotta be aliens. How can they do that? I am so tired. And for the last two rounds, all I did was kind of, you know, duck and take it and try to survive to the end and not get knocked out. It's an awful feeling. God says when we don't put his word at the center of our lives, we live like that. We can't ever hit back. And he wants us to be able to hit back. So he says, hey, take up the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and it will give you offensive weapons. And then finally, the last thing he says is, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. I love that. Raise your hand if you think, you know what, I really don't know how to pray. Put your hands up, come on, everybody feels that way. God says, there's not certain prayers that, you know, are acceptable and others aren't. He says, give them all, whatever you got. All kinds of prayers, about anything, about everything. You see, we don't learn to pray by having somebody teach us. We learn to pray by praying. And there's no such thing as failure at prayer. There's only failure to pray. So God says, you know, take what you got and start offering it. Because what happens is through that, you'll begin to learn more and more and more how to pray. And as a consequence, you will be able to take your stand in this spiritual battle. Suddenly, your life will continually affect this invisible reality that is influencing you and everyone around you. Paul says, hey, I need you to do this. Not, not only as individuals, but as a church. Not only as an individual, but as a team. He says, put on this armor because the battle is very real. Profoundly real. You know, there's a deep part of each one of us, and here's where we close this morning, that can't think of anything more awesome and being part of saving somebody else's life. But you never get there if you don't learn how to do it. And in the same way, God says, I know you want to be used in the lives of your family and your neighbors and the people you work with and your friends and those you go to school with. I know you want to be used. You've got to prepare. He says, prepare so that you can be. He says, if you prepare, if you prepare, you will be. And you'll begin to understand that we're not here to defeat our flesh and blood enemies. We're here to save them from the real enemy who is this devil. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Let me just ask you, have you ever set out to put on the armor of God, to be strong in his power? He invites us to. He invites you to. Because you're his son, you're his daughter, because you're his soldier, calls you to understand that through your life 
that spiritual enemy can be driven back and defeated and that you can know the joy of being part of his mission if you will prepare, if you will seek to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, all we got to do is turn on the news to see the strife in our world. But it's when we turn to your word that we see what's the cause of it. Help us to enter into that battle, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with me, church.